Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right, Augustus Gloop. We have had enough of this real and false world barrier dissolving into nothing. I know that's a stretch, but <laughs> according, according to The Guardian, Mars Wrigley has been fined after two workers tumbled into chocolate tank last year it's all happening like it's all wow what is fake is real and this also brings to mind like how much would you consider that fine to be worth if you had to like ballpark it i mean did they die because that's a big you know if they just got messy then now whatever but like if (laughs) they drowned in chocolate i mean it's not the worst way to go but it's pretty bad neither worker sustained injuries as they tumbled into a tank partially filled with chocolate as they carried out maintenance work how much, how much are you going to charge for that? Uh, 20000 Yeah, I mean, that's just funny. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, like, I get it. You know? There should be a safety railing, whatever. But right, How much will that get me on America's Funniest Home Video? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, you'll be delighted to know that it has specifically been categorized as a quote-unquote serious citation. So no, Jennifer, it's not funny. Okay. And, <laughs> and no way they find Mars $14,500. So, you know, yeah. about $7,250 per person. I mean, yeah, not bad for a chocolate bath, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the tank was reportedly waist high in chocolate. First responders did have to help cut a hole in the tank to free the workers. They Ooh. were apparently unable to get out themselves, according to local reports. It was not clear how they fell into the tank, and OSHA has since cited Mars Wrigley in connection with the incident. Because the workers were not authorized to operate in the tanks and Mm. were also not sufficiently trained with safety procedures surrounding factory equipment. Mm. They do say in a splendid display of brown nosing, as always, we appreciate OSHA's collaborative approach. Of course. Working with us to conduct the after action review. Thank you, sir. May I have another? (laughs) (laughs) Just remarkable, right? See, and now hear me out on this. Like, I realize I'm probably a little cynical, but what if they didn't actually fall into the vat? These were two idiots who were trying to Augustus gloop themselves, but Mars Wrigley didn't want the bad PR of, oh, yeah, sometimes our employees swim in the food that you're eating. So, like, they would rather claim it was an accident. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I, right. I just don't know. It's the new TikTok challenge. There you go. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next link. Well, I like that we started off with the idea of dissolving boundaries, although I did not expect it to be about chocolate. (laughs) This article is titled, How Aliens Will Actually Make First Contact with Humanity, A Scientist Explains. Oh, okay. Yeah, this one's from sciencefocus.com and uh, starts off with a little bit of a hypothetical. The year is 2063, 
and brilliant scientist Zephram Cochran has just oh. carried out the first successful <laughs> test of a warp engine. Is this from a sci-fi book? Is that what's happening right now? Oh, yeah. That's a Star Trek reference. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah. I, I'm not a Trekkie yet. Trekker. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I did not recognize it. But So the warp signature is detected by a nearby Vulcan ship. There you go. The crew of which determined that humanity has finally matured enough for first contact. Professor Michael Garrett, director of the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics and the current chair of the International Academy of Astronautics Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or IAA SETI, says, I don't think you could rule out such a scenario. According to Garrett, our knowledge of intelligent alien life is more likely to come from an observatory receiving an extraterrestrial signal rather than the sudden arrival of a ship. Garrett says, the first step is verification of the signal by an independent observatory. The Discoverer's government, and eventually the United Nations, should then be informed with the news of the contact announced to the public soon after. (laughs) Assuming that those organizations persist into the future, right? Yeah, and (laughs) Garrett says, whether the protocol would actually be adopted, I have some doubts. If the signal is information-rich, for example, I think that has much larger consequences than a signal that just points towards there being an intelligent civilization somewhere. There's also the question of whether we would respond. It is very difficult to stop people transmitting signals into space. You will no doubt have small groups of enthusiasts and amateurs that would send signals, but what entitles any group, individual, or country to send out messages on behalf of the whole planet? That's where the United Nations' involvement is important, although currently the UN does not have a view on this. Garrett says, I think a lot depends on distance. If the aliens are within the solar system, then I think people will be worried. But if they're on the other side of the galaxy, I think people would be excited by that. Some religious organizations may need to change their doctrines, but most religions are pretty good at accommodating things as they arise. Mm -hmm. I would like to think that if we find another civilization out there, that it would accelerate our own political maturity, ethics, and morality. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you look at the state of the world, like if you start examining racism and xenophobia on a granular level, two countries in Central America will hate each other way more than they hate random people in a faraway country. So I think we're just going to continue hating each other and the aliens would just be sort of a distant object. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You hate nobody more than your neighbor because you actually know them and have to deal with them. Exactly. So the article ends off here, but I do like to dabble in conspiracy theories that basically have no effect until we know if they're true or not, like aliens. And Mm -hmm. uh, at this point, it doesn't seem like much of a conspiracy because the government has been publishing lots of UFO documentation. There's all that stuff out there about the military. So I I will say this about that conspiracy theory. If I were in the U.S. military or in the Air Force, in particular, and I had uh, super advanced spy planes, it would be in my best interest to continue the lie that that is actually aliens because we're hovering over China, we're hovering over other places we shouldn't be. And Mm. so it's easier for us to just say, ah, that's aliens, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying there's not out there. I'm just also saying that there's another side of the conspiracy that says, well, I mean, it could just be a super advanced U.S. military stuff. Right. Which is another yeah. conspiracy. It's just a conspiracy <laughs> in the other direction. It's just like Correct. Uh, 100%. Government. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much I can divulge on a podcast. I have a, a relative who was a uh, three-star general in the Air Force, and oh. he ran some of the secret projects. So Thanksgiving is fun in your family, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see him often, (laughs) if at all. But he's one of those that definitively knows the truth. And he's told this to my father when my dad just point blank asked him, hey, are there aliens? He said, "Eh, Mark, let me tell you this. You don't need to worry about that. 
Well, <laughs> unless he's an alien, we could take the conspiracy a third deep. Yeah. And then, you know. Right. It is the, I can neither confirm nor deny. Right. It's pleading the fifth when we all know what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Next link. Next, Next link. Okay. Some promising, happier news. This is from the new Atlas. Promising male contraceptive pill works in 30 minutes and wears Whoa. off in a day. Ooh, hey. wow. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say that for decades, women have shouldered much, if not all, the responsibility for contraceptives. Mm-hmm. And the past attempts we had were ineffective. They either lasted too long, took too long to kick in, and just had way too many side effects. Mm. So a team at Wheel Cornell Medicine has a pill that seems to solve these issues. In mice, let me be clear. Oh, yeah. It works by targeting a protein called soluble adenylyl cyclase, or SAC, which is vital for sperm function. That makes the drug a SAC inhibitor. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh These scientists and their punny names, right? (laughs) Yeah. So they gave male mice a single dose of the SAC inhibitor called TDI-11861. I'm not sure if I get that pun, though. And then after (laughs) 52 mating attempts, not a single mouse became pregnant compared to about a third of the control group. Wow. Apparently, it works rather quickly. Within 30 to 60 minutes, remains 100% effective for up to two and a half hours. By the third hour... Some of the sperm regain their motility. So it basically is like a tiny little internal stun gun for sperm. Mm-hmm. It's like, right, go to they sleep. just can't <laughs> swim. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. And then after 24 hours, they were all back. <laughs> yeah, if it starts to wear off in three hours, you're starting to cut it close. Like the ideal would be about six to eight hours. Right, or 24. Okay. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, you know, you're going out to the clubs or whatever, you take it at 9 p.m. By midnight, you're in trouble again. You know, that doesn't get Mm -hmm. you to the 2 a.m. last call. So (laughs) (laughs) there is a lot of variable in terms of timing, though. I mean, that struck me as well. Like, it seems to be a great way to develop some like weird anxiety about setting alarms to get the timing exactly right. Right. This has to happen right now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure in time they'll figure out ways to extend that lifespan out a little bit. Yeah. Give it like a slow dissolve coating where you're taking like Mm -hmm. multiple doses over the, you know, they can make that work. The slow release. Yeah. Yeah. There are somewhat alternatives to this right now that are temporary, but they're not great. They can take weeks to to work or to regain fertility and it involves let's just say a rather invasive procedure i mean at the same time well yeah invasive procedure is no good but like a woman's birth control pills they basically take a month to kick in reliably because you got to go through a whole cycle Mm -hmm. and if you're going to stop taking them you're looking at three to four weeks before you're back on your own normal cycle Mm -hmm. so i you know That feels like a like a weak complaint if it it takes a while. Right. I would also argue that the pill is somewhat invasive. It's just not. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a hormonal invasion. Well, yeah. And I read a thing once that was talking about, you know, you said they, they had canceled some early attempts at male contraception because they had too many side effects. And when you actually looked at it, the side effects the men were experiencing were basically identical to side effects that many women get from birth control pills. But they were just like, oh, Mm -hmm. no, don't let them have headaches. That's so sad. And so they just just said no. Not headaches for men. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, 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 no. no. So, yeah, no testing in humans yet, but we'll see if it carries across, which it 
does, but we will probably legislate that right away as well. <laughs> yeah, but speaking of conspiracy theories, this is where somebody comes up and says they're putting it in the water. And now, oh, <laughs> <boy>. <laughs> turning the frogs gay. There you go. Yep, yep, there yep. you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, as we've learned today, sometimes in science, we have to talk about bad science. And that's <laughs> what this next article from McGill University is all about. It's called One of Last Century's Most Influential Social Science Studies is Pretty Bad. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. There's so many. Which one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it's talking about a supposed phenomenon known as the Hawthorne effect, which I had never heard of, but is apparently a standard part of any first year psychology or business major curriculum. And what it claims is that counterintuitively, any change to a worker's environment makes them more productive, even when the change seems like it would make the job harder, simply because the workers feel like they're being paid attention to and cared about. And on the one hand, the belief in this effect was instrumental in developing the modern human resources department and treating workers like human beings rather than cogs in a machine. On the other hand, it has also led to a lot of questionable optimization choices that we do see in the modern HR department, like having a company Christmas party instead of just paying your people more. Mm -hmm. And more to the point, we now know that the data from the original study that started this whole thing was just massively flawed. So it all started in 1924 when the National Research Council decided they wanted to find out how much the lighting in a factory affected worker productivity. So they selected a facility called Hawthorne Works just outside of Chicago that employed around 40,000 men and women assembling telephone equipment for AT&T. And at first, they just messed with the lights in the whole facility. They'd make them brighter for a week, then they'd dim them for a week. And they found that no matter what they did, productivity increased immediately following the change and then tapered back to baseline in the days after. Hmm. What they didn't think about, however, is that they were always changing the lights on Sundays when all the workers had the day off. So what they were really finding was that people were most productive on Mondays when they were well-rested and that their productivity went down as the week dragged on. Also, the factory had giant windows that let in natural light, and the electric lights they did have were on an unreliable generator that reportedly flickered all the time even before they started the experiment. Hmm. Most tellingly, the one time they created an actual control group and changed the lights for only half of the factory workers, the other half of the factory performed exactly the same as the half where the lights were changed. Nonetheless, they ignored all that and were pretty shocked and amazed by what they thought they'd found. So they decided to take a small number of women off the factory floor and move them into a special room where they could test their working conditions even further. And for five years, the men running these studies played with the number of days these women had to work, the length of their breaks, where they were sitting in the room, and a ton of other variables. And again, what they found was that no matter what they did to these women— They were more productive in that room than the people back out on the factory floor. (laughs) So the studies got written up in a trade magazine, and by the 1950s, it had become a standard narrative that science had shown workers will work harder if you constantly switch up their environment for basically no reason at all. And what's really amazing is that, aside from the fact that we can easily see the flaws in these studies, the women themselves were actually interviewed in the 1970s. And they made it very clear that they were actively choosing to work harder in that room because, number one, they were getting paid more to be part of the study. And number two, they hated their boss on the main floor and didn't want to go back. And the threat of going back was real because the women revealed that partway through the study, two girls who weren't working harder were kicked out of the room and replaced. Yeah. So, like, their science was just bad in every direction. (laughs) And that's all pretty mind boggling. But here's the really weird thing. 
as it started to become evident in the 70s that these studies were complete garbage, social scientists didn't just get rid of the idea. Instead, they started to modify the definition of the Hawthorne effect. And today, if you look it up in a scientific context, what they're now calling the Hawthorne effect is the idea that test subjects will behave differently if they know they're being watched, which is basically an offshoot of the placebo effect and is one of the reasons why we know it's so important to have control groups and do double-blind studies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that is not at all what the original studies claimed. And in the business world, the Hawthorne effect is still very much being used to refer to modifying employee behavior. And if you what? try to tell them it's not real... They say, no, look, here's a modern scientific paper talking about the Hawthorne effect because the social scientists didn't just want to admit they were wrong and come up with a new name for a new thing. So (laughs) long story short, everyone in this story is dumb, but don't be a business major because you're definitely being lied to. Like, (laughs) You're getting not all of the facts. Yeah, you're getting actively bad information instead of just pretend cover our butts information. (laughs) Yeah, but what could be more on brand for the world of business than that? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, that's it. Business bad, capitalism evil. Let's all become pirates. <laughs> and uh, if we need a little bit of a model to look to, hey, we used to have oyster pirates in the San Francisco Bay. Like, okay, they stole oysters. Not like they were oysters with eye patches and they came oh. in. <laughs> I would really like to see that anime series. That's so cute. <laughs> no, sadly, JSTOR Daily is talking about the human pirates who are stealing oysters. In part because oysters were once a key element in native economies of the region. They were a reliable source of free protein for working class and poor urban dwellers. But commercial oyster farming had become a really big industry by the late 1800s. And as such, these commercial oyster beds were valuable and pirates would come by night to steal the oysters in them. But, you know, meanwhile, the oyster bed owners had paid for the land and paid to seed the beds with East Coast oysters, which feels like a rap rivalry. (laughs) So they were losing expensive property, right? It was a challenge for law enforcement because the stolen oyster looks exactly the same as one that grew on an abandoned bed and was Mm. free for anybody to take. As historian Matthew Morse Booker asks in the Pacific Historical Review, who should have access to natural resources and to whom did the bay belong? Corporation. (laughs) That's kind of where we are now, right? Mm -hmm. As Booker explains, quote, everywhere in the industrializing 19th century world, poor people lost access to traditional common lands and the products they had gathered there. This loss was contested. And in California, it was not just industrialization that was changing the culture of the Tidelands. We also had things like Mexican law and American law differed on whether tidal areas were commons or whether they could even be privately owned. But shellfish would be an even greater challenge because of the bay's increasing pollution. It was obviously a growing city. They had multiple industries all affecting the waterways and basically diminished the shellfish population and whatever survivors were left were basically too toxic to eat. Mm. And this was by the 1920s. The oyster industry was dying at this point. No one had sold or stolen a San Francisco Bay oyster since 1956. I mean, that's one way to deal with crime is make the thing not (laughs) worth stealing. Boy, howdy. It's the American (laughs) way, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. 
So what's weird, though, or not weird, hopeful, let's end on a hopeful note here. The native oyster, they've still been kicking, right? They've still been alive in small numbers. And yes, they are too full of heavy metals to be edible now. But the population is rebounding in the bay, which is great because oysters are basically living water filtration. Sad that they're full of heavy metals, but that's kind of what they're there for. So let them do their thing and maybe we can eat them again, you know? I mean, if they clean the water, that's great. It kind of sounds like we can't eat them again because we're actively using them as mercury (laughs) sponges. Yeah, you know, (laughs) but like in a perfect world, we get enough of them to evolve into even better mercury sponges. And Mm. proliferate to such a degree that we can still eat them because by then we'll be all full of heavy metals and it won't even really like add to the pile. Well, it's like changing the air filter. Like you put a couple of generations of oysters in there and just say, well, you guys are the sacrificial ones. Load them up with the heavy metals, put them in a nuclear bunker. And then the fifth or sixth generation, they'll just clean out a little bit and still be edible. Or mutate into something. (laughs) Right. Holy. (laughs) Or they're kaiju at that point. We never, you know, we got to just try it out. (laughs) Right. All right. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from CNN.com, and it's titled, Letter Arrives More Than 100 Years After Being Posted. Oops. Oh, the post office. I swear. Yeah. I, ju- I just had a really bad experience at the post office, so I'm going to like keep my mouth shut during this one. <laughs> so this is in London. Sent in February 1916, the correspondence arrived at its intended address in Hamlet Road, South London, much to the bewilderment of the current occupants. Mm-hmm. Finlay Glenn told CNN Thursday, We noticed that the year on it was 16. So we thought it was 2016. (laughs) Then we noticed that the stamp was a king rather than a queen, so we thought that it couldn't have been 2016. Oh, wow. Glenn told CNN that the letter arrived at the property a couple of years ago, but he has only recently taken it to the local historical society so they can research it further. The envelope has a one-pence stamp bearing the head of King George V. The letter was sent in the middle of World War I, more than a decade before Queen Elizabeth II was born. Once we realized it was very old, we felt that it was okay to open up the letter, said Glenn, 27. (laughs) He is 27 years old, not the 27th Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Under the Postal Services Act 2000, it is a crime to open mail not addressed to you. But Glenn said he can only apologize if he's committed a crime. (laughs) After realizing that the letter may be of historical interest, he gave it to the Norwood Review, a local quarterly magazine. Stephen Oxford, editor of the magazine, says in a release, As a local historian, I was amazed and delighted to have the details of the letter passed to me. The letter was addressed to My Dear Katie, who, according to Oxford, was the wife of local stamp magnate Oswald Marsh. Oh, the irony. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was written by Christabel Menel, the daughter of tea merchant Henry Took Menel, while her family was on holiday in Bath in western England. In the letter, Metal writes, I've been most miserable here with a very heavy cold. Oxford told CNN, lots of wealthy middle-class people moved into the area in the late 1800s. Oswald Marsh, the former resident of the Hamlet Road property, was a highly regarded stamp dealer who was often called as an expert witness in cases of stamp fraud. The Norwood Review is producing a full report on the letter, yet it remains a mystery as to how the letter arrived at Glen's flat. Oxford noted that the letter was postmarked Sydenham, an area in southeast London. He thinks it may have well been lost sitting in a dark corner in the Sydenham sorting office and only recently discovered. Yep. Seems like a fair assumption. Uh, (laughs) Glenn said he and his girlfriend would be happy to give the letter to a local archive if it's of serious historical significance. 
But if it's found to be more innocuous, he said, it would be nice for us to be able to hold on to it. If it's worth money, I'll give it away. But if it's not, I'm going to keep it. Yeah. Mm. I kind of question his thing of like, if I've committed a crime, all I can do is apologize. Like, that's not how crimes work. Mm -mm. (laughs) I mean, it's been 100 years, to be fair. Right. And he's he's British, right? So it's just like, it's old. It's mine. Sorry. I like how you had to give that one a sorry sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, apologies to our dear British listeners if we have any. But (laughs) next link. Next Next link. link. Okay, this comes from the Weather Network. Mm. World's deadliest mushrooms may be adapting to spread faster. Oh, dead gummit. Come on now. I mean, that's kind of what everything does, right? Adapt to Mm -hmm. kill us better. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, death caps are spreading quickly in California, and a new study may indicate why. So 90% of deaths attributed to eating mushrooms are from death caps. And if it doesn't kill you, it can also cause permanent liver and kidney damage. Hmm. It's rather inconspicuous with just a light shade of green or bronze or white. It grows just a few centimeters. And wouldn't you know, it's not a native species. It's a European species, likely brought over in the roots of trees, imported to U.S. and Canada. And one of the biggest issues with them is that the juvenile caps are sometimes mistaken for edible puffballs or Asian paddy straw mushrooms. Hmm. And there's nothing in the taste to tell you it's going to kill you. On average, one person dies each year from eating one of them. Wow. And many, many more suffer permanent damage. Okay, so let's get back to what makes these new death caps more invasive. North America's death caps population has found a new way to reproduce. Oh. Mm. Mm -hmm. So in Europe, they spread by combining genomes with a partner. However, analysis of 86 mushrooms collected in California starting in 93 and in parts of Europe pushing all the way back to the late 70s, they found that U.S. mushrooms reproduce using the chromosomes of an individual. Essentially, they're cloning themselves. Wow. The diverse reproductive strategies of the death cap is likely what's causing it to spread because it doesn't just clone themselves. It can also find a partner. So these are just incel mushrooms spreading across the U.S. is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. Reproducing like this has its limits. It'll limit diversity, it can cause harm in the long run, but the authors hypothesize it could be using this method to look for a mate because some of the offspring of these mushrooms do mate and others don't. Hmm. We're not sure if this is the only reason for the rapid spread in states like California, uh, but that's it for the death cap spreading. Just be on the lookout for that across <laughs> the country. You know, <laughs> just don't eat mushrooms you find in the forest. Yeah, like, that's yeah. what are you doing out there eating stuff you find on the ground anyway? Don't do that. I mean, mm-hmm. foraging is so cool, but it does worry me because of yeah. how quickly things do evolve. Like, yeah, twenty years ago this was a safe guy, but now it's full of heavy metals, and we're gonna have to steal this oyster in the dark <laughs> exactly. of night. Exactly. Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from The Guardian, and it's called U.S. Treasure Hunter Accuses FBI of Covering Up Discovery of Civil War Gold. Hmm. (laughs) So our underdog protagonists here are Dennis Parada and his son, who own and operate a treasure hunting business called Finders Keepers. (laughs) Well, says what it does on the tin. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And despite the name of their company, they know all too well that when it comes to finding any kind of buried antiquities, the most important question is who owns it. Mm. 
And if you'll pardon the pun, it's often a bit of a minefield because on the one hand, you have the question of who owns the land, which is important. But depending on how much is known or can be discovered about the provenance of the treasure, that may give you a completely different picture of who owned it at the moment it was lost, which can also lead to legitimate claims. So when it comes to treasure found on public land, the U.S. government has a very clear policy of offering a finder's fee in the hopes that they can avoid court battles over ownership, because that's the most expensive and time-consuming outcome for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. And also, the government doesn't have time to be out there looking for treasure. So if these professionals are incentivized to do the work because they know they're guaranteed a percentage, then everybody walks away happy. Unless, of course, the government decides to be a big old thief, which (laughs) unfortunately does seem to be what has happened here. So Parada and his son had scoured through historical archives, which is a big part of their job, and discovered references to a shipment of gold that had gone missing in 1863 on its way to the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. And they spent years tracking the path this shipment might have taken through the Pennsylvania wilderness until finally, in 2018, their equipment detected a seven to nine ton mass of what was almost certainly gold buried deep underground in an area called Dents Run, that's D-E-N-T-S, which is about 135 miles northeast of Pittsburgh. So the Paradas did what they were supposed to do, which is notify the FBI and lead them to the site. The FBI cordoned off the area, did a little digging, and then a week later they said, sorry, we didn't find anything. And Parada's (laughs) like, well, that's obviously nonsense. I want to see the photos of your dig. Because with something big and official like this, the Mm -hmm. FBI is required to document the entire process, including not just photos, but videos. Mm. And initially, the FBI sent over these incredibly grainy black and white photos So Parada filed a Freedom of Information Act request saying, no, I know you have high-res color photos and video and maps of the dig, and I want all of it. And when he finally got them, he found huge holes in the evidence. Uh Uh-huh. There is no video of the second day of the dig at all. And specifically, there are no photos or videos of a 12-foot deep trench on the FBI's own dig map, which Parada says if you follow the timeline of the dig, that trench could only have been dug at night. What? Now, the FBI claims they never dug at night, but multiple local residents have said they heard a backhoe and jackhammers overnight, as well as the arrival and departure of several large armored trucks. Wow. It also looks like some of the photos the FBI did provide have been completely fabricated. What? (laughs) Yeah, because halfway through the dig, a big snowstorm came through. And some of the photos that are supposed to be from right after the storm have no snow in them. And then photos from a few hours after that are covered in snow. Like, they did not even try, really. Zero continuity. Where is the continuity manager here? Come on. (laughs) So Parada has, of course, taken them to court because we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that he's owed a percentage of. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, I think the Justice Department knows they're going to lose. They're just going to drag it out as long as possible for the float and try to wear him down until he agrees to settle for a lower amount. Yeah. Because as of right now, they're already five years in and the judge in the case is still ruling on procedural things like whether the FBI initially satisfied its obligation in the FOIA request. They're nowhere near addressing the question of whether they got the gold or is there a potential cover up. So. I mean, the lesson here clearly is if you find treasure, you need to get your own backhoe, pay off the neighbors and get the hell out of Dodge because the FBI is not your friend. When does something become treasure? It's always something I've wondered. I've always kind of felt like it has to be buried. Like that to me is is critical. (laughs) If it's not buried, it's just like, oh, you're just rich. 
You know, right, right, right. <laughs> like, well, there has to be something <laughs> about a missing and a discovery, I think, to qualify as treasure. Mm-hmm. No. Well, and the missing part of this story is a little weird, too, because the idea was this was during the Civil War and it was Union gold being transported that got sort of ambushed by a Confederate militia. Except if you've just ambushed this wagon full of gold, like, why is it still there? I don't know who says, all right, we've killed these soldiers and unearthed a massive amount of gold in a wagon. Let's leave it. <laughs> so it just the, the story seems bizarre. It feels mm-hmm. like it wasn't lost. It was stolen in the first place. Mm-hmm. But then whoever buried it never came back for it. I don't know. Ooh, I really feel for the uh, finders keepers business because, mm-hmm. you know, it was a really bold way to name themselves, but right. they, they seem to fail on that single premise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It doesn't play well in court, though, that name. Like, <laughs> no. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include NASA images a weirdly long asteroid, the antibodies from camels and sharks that could change medicine, and that time Disneyland Paris built a Jules Verne-themed Space Mountain ride. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.